Well, we are so glad that you're here. We are continuing in our Deuteronomy series. And uh, today we're going to kind of dive on into a couple of sections of Deuteronomy, focusing specifically in on one particular verse. So uh, join with me and we'll pray and get started. Father, thank you so much for this opportunity to come together to worship you through um, fellowship and worship and song and study um, and just connectedness with one another and with you. We bless you, God, for this space, for this time together, and we are so gracious, so grateful for your mercy to us and your grace to us um, as we continue to study your word. Turn our hearts towards you, our eyes and our ears, um, make them aware of your presence in this place. We bless you and ask all this in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Torah closet looks different today, you guys. Can you tell? Yeah, the, the Torah is actually not in there, so it's just a closet right now. And uh, it, tonight at sundown starts the evening of Rosh Hashanah, or the head of the year, or in the Bible, in the Torah, it's known as the Feast of Trumpets. And it's the beginning of the High Holy Days season, where, or also called the Days of Awe, where people are preparing now for the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, which, not Yom Kippur, that's how some people say, but it's Yom Kippur, um, the Day of Atonement, which will come in 10 days. So tonight, uh, Congregation Eitz Chaim is very well attended for the services for the High Holy Days. They get like about eight to 900 people. So that does not fit in this room. So they rent space at the JCC and they're over there this evening. And they earlier this week in preparing their space had volunteers come and very carefully move not just the Torah scrolls, but also the Ark and the normally present here, that beautiful Israel tapestry that sits there. And that is all now awaiting the High Holy Day worship start in just a short bit this evening and then tomorrow and through the next day. So we can be remembering our Jewish brothers and sisters as they're um, in the midst of a really beautiful um, time of year. It's quite, it's quite lovely. Lots of shofars being blown tonight and tomorrow. So, um, and if you don't know what that is, my daughter will show you repeatedly how to blow one directly in your ear for a long time. All right. She's fulfilled that commandment. <laughs> All right. Okay, so as we were in Deuteronomy 12 last week, we're moving into Deuteronomy 13. And 13, it starts out really beautifully. And if you even just search Deuteronomy 13, you'll find lovely images for the very beginning. Like, it is the Lord your God you must follow, and in him you must revere. Keep his commands and obey him, serve him, and hold fast to him. And it makes for really nice graphics um, that you can find, or like good Bible bumper stickers that you can stick in places. But when you continue to read on in Deuteronomy 13, it becomes, at least for me, a very difficult text to preach because there's passages like this. If your very own brother or your son or daughter or the wife you love, I don't care how pretty you make it look, or your closest friend secretly entices you saying, let us go and worship other gods, show them no pity, do not spare or shield them, you must certainly put them to death. Your hand must be the first in putting them to death and then the hands of all the people stone them to death because they tried to turn you away from the Lord your God. There ends our reading. So, um, so, you know, like, it's nice that we always pick and choose these beautiful verses at the beginning. Like, let's just hold fast to the Lord, but we never read on into the, like, you're going to stone these people. And even if it's your very child, your hand will be the first to raise and put that person to death. So that's um, not something I want to preach on today. So um, we're going to move. <laughs> we'll touch on it. <laughs> I'll explain it because we're spark. 
Uh, but it's, it's not my, my heavily preached. I'm like, that just sounds upsetting. Uh, and it is. Deuteronomy chapter 14 then continues. And at the beginning of 14.1, after all of those, like if it's a diviner among you or a prophet among you or a sorcerer among you, or if it's somebody that you love or somebody you don't know, and you're going to put him to death. And then if it happened in the town, you're going to destroy that town, not let anything like literally quite still stick to your hand from the destruction of that town. When you go into the Canaanite land, it's very heavy and challenging. Um, and then Deuteronomy chapter 14, one, you are the children of the Lord, your God. You must not lacerate yourselves or shave your forelocks for the dead. For you are people holy to the Lord, your God. It is you. The Lord has chosen out of all the peoples on earth to be his people, his treasured possession. And then the next verse, you shall not eat any abhorrent thing. And then it goes through a long list of what is and is not kosher. Um, this is a coloring page. Like, is it kosher? Then color it. If it's not kosher, um, don't color it. And that's, that's going to be a test for you all at the end. Um, and Deuteronomy 14 is your text for that. Can you eat this? Can you not eat that? And it continues on. So I actually would say, first of all, the reason why these verses are in there is because it is written to a particular time in a particular place with a particular people, right? And there were things that they were going into the new land, and there were customs and practices in that land and amongst those people that were very specific to the gods and goddesses that were worshipped in that land. And so if anyone did any of those things, it very quickly led towards apostasy, right? It quickly led towards the rejection of the God of Israel. And we talked last week in great detail about how that was a challenge for Israel. And the prophets talk about it. And we're well aware that up through Hezekiah and Josiah and beyond, people were mixing and mashing all of those different gods and goddesses together. And it was difficult. Um, Even in the temple itself, it was happening. And so after Israel will then go into exile with Babylon and then come back, the Judean kingdom coming back then with the full name Israel. When they do that, then they're, they're having to reconcile with that and they're going to clean up their worship act quite a bit upon their return. But up until that point, things are messy. And so Deuteronomy is trying to address all of those challenges. And it says in very stark terms, do this, don't do that, kill the person, be the first person to kill the person, stone the person. And yet we would note that with just one or two exceptions that are called out in the Torah, in the Bible, that's actually not something Israel regularly did. Um, we have that verse that parents love to pull out when their kids are giving a problem, like if you rebel against your, if your child's being rebellious, bring him to the front gate and you can just stone him and kill him, right? Like, it's great. No, we have never any record of Israel actually doing that. Um, so I just throw that out there. Yes, these are challenging verses. I think we all know that they're in our Bible at Spark we have the ethic of not skipping over them so that like later on you go to find that very nice hold and fast to the Lord your God verse, then you're shocked by all the crazy stuff right before and after it. So we're, we're letting you know it's there, but we also want to let you know that the ethic that stands behind it is actually really important, and we're going to talk about that today. So the title of this message is, You Are the Children of the Lord Your God. Well, what does this mean? What does it mean to be called God's children? What does it mean in ancient Israel? And what does it mean today? What does it mean to be called out as a people, the children of God? Not just the children of the king, but the children of the God who created everything, who is king and ruler over all. In our Bible thus far, as we've moved from Genesis, Exodus, and Leviticus, when we, in Numbers, when we get to Deuteronomy... Deuteronomy is actually the first book in the Bible that's to speak of God as loving and choosing Israel specifically. 
Um, Exodus has some verses in there as well, but specifically doing that as like a people group. God's love is most often expressed in the two metaphors to describe the relationship between God and Israel as the bonds between a father and a child or between husband and wife. So Deuteronomy is really going to push on this intimate relationship like father to child or spouse to spouse, okay? And as then we start to understand Deuteronomy, sort of, um, let's say, placing God's relationship with Israel in this way, it starts right at the very beginning in Deuteronomy chapter 1. The Lord your God who goes before you is the one who will fight for you, just as he did for you in Egypt before your very eyes and in the wilderness, where you saw how the Lord your God carried you just as one carries a child all the way that you traveled until you reached this place. So the very beginning of Deuteronomy positions itself as God is a loving father caring for Israel as that child. That's a very fragile place to be, isn't it? When we look in our society at children, it's so easy to point and say that there's injustice happening on behalf of a child because we see a child as innocent. When we see children who are unhoused in our community, our heart breaks because we see that child as innocent and needing the protection of a parent, of a child, of a grown-up in the room. When we see adults, we tend to not see those adults as innocent, do we? We're like, well, you have responsibility for being here. We don't, we don't address the systems of injustice. We don't address any of those other things that might be going on, and we tend to not see one another still as children of God. We tend to first just only see those that are young in age as the most vulnerable. But that phrasing is what God's going to use the whole time for Israel, no matter how old Israel gets. In Deuteronomy chapter 4, verses 37 through 38, Deuteronomy is going to speak of God loving, choosing, and assigning an inheritance to Israel, which mirrors the ancient Near Eastern process of adoption by a loving father. A loving father that would adopt someone would have to continue to keep that person as a full member of their family forever and ever. It was a very important sacred held bond, and there was a process for it, and it was talked about that you would love and choose, and the full inheritance that you would give any child born into your family would be afforded to that child that was adopted in as well. Moses himself adopted very early on. In fact, the rabbis give Pharaoh's daughter, who's unnamed in our text, they give her a name. And they, they've decided to connect her with this woman, and they call her Batya, which means daughter of God. Because she was the one that defied her own father and brought Moses into her home and raised him up as her own. And therefore, she gets that title of daughter of God in, in the Midrashic rabbinic literature, which I just love. That adoption and that process or idea of being brought into God's family and brought into, into a family of origin even, brought into that family and being immediately taken care of and seen as part of that family from the very beginning, that process is part of our spiritual journey. So when we continue then in Deuteronomy 4.37, that part of like, he loved your ancestors, he chose their descendants after them, brought you out of Egypt with his own power, this is what a God does, then this is what a father does, giving you the land as the inheritance as it is today. It reminds me very much of what Jesus says to the disciples in John 15. He says, you remember, you didn't choose me, I chose you. It's that language of adoption and connection of father to child that we start to see pushing through this beginning part of our Israel story. 
And even then moving into Ephesians, this beautiful letter of Paul, where Paul is acknowledging the fact that children in the ancient uh, Greco-Roman world were often discarded on trash heaps outside of the city gates. Um, Any child born with what was perceived as a deformity or the wrong gender or there were just too many mouths in the family, you would not actually kill that child. You would just leave them to die by exposure. And to cities like that, Paul writes then, for he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight, right? Without defect, without deformity. And in love, he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Christ Jesus, and that that is God's pleasure and will, his good pleasure and will. This language of being adopted into God's family or being cared as God's child, cared for as God's children and identified as such pushes through our entire text. And as we start to then see this very beginning of that, that verse in Deuteronomy 14, you are children of the Lord, a treasured possession, It starts to push then this knowledge for all of us that we have a family and we belong and we have an identity and we have a father. And I can imagine that that would be very deeply important for Israel to know as they move into this new land. You have a family, you belong, you have an identity, you have a father, and those things aren't going away. They didn't go away in the processes and the structures of the ancient Near Eastern world or an ancient Greco-Roman world, and they don't go away today. So when we talk about all the other rules around how Israel should behave when they enter into the land, how they're to abhor the worship of foreign gods, and how they're to eat differently and act differently, it is because they belong to a particular family, and they have an identity, and they have a father. So We don't get to just act any way we want to act, do we? Do you ever have that thing when you're growing up and you would say to your mom or your dad, but so-and-so gets to do it, right? And what did your parent immediately say? I am not their parent, right? They are not my child. They will have their own rules for their own family, and you are part of my family. And so whose daughter are you, right? Whose daughter are you? Years ago, we were doing children's ministry, and a little girl just hauled off and punched one of the teachers straight in the nose. And it was, it was rough. It was, it was difficult. And she denied it fervently. She was just steadfast. I didn't do it. I didn't do it. I mean, teachers, like, eyes are watery. It's like all this chaos and everything else. And her father kneels down, and I'll never forget these good friends of ours. He just knelt down. He looked straight in her eyes. He goes, whose daughter are you? And she was like, I didn't do it. I didn't do it. Whose daughter are you? Are you my daughter? But daddy, I didn't do it. I didn't do it. It was the third time. Whose daughter are you? I'm your daughter, daddy. And then she cried. And then she was like, I did. (laughs) I punched that. (laughs) Can't get away with that kind of stuff. And the teacher is like, you know, weeping (laughs) on the corner. Whose daughter are you? We behave differently when we belong to a family. We have a core identity to that family, don't we? There's rules to our household. There's things that shift and change because we know we belong and we know whose we are. And that is why I think God is so concerned with making sure that we understand that God is the one that carried us out of Israel. God is the one that has called us his own. God is the one that has chosen us, that has predestined us, that has adopted us into God's family and called us his children. And that that isn't changing now that we're moving into this new land. 
This is my favorite story, and I've told it thousands of times, but I'm going to tell it again. A long time ago, in a kingdom far away, there was a beautiful princess. And she was born into the most wonderful, amazing royal family. And as she was starting to grow up, she would go and explore the gardens of the royal grounds, right? Just like loved going from tree to tree and flower to flower. And then she saw this little hole in the hedge, and she pushed through and found herself in a forest. And she kept going and going, curiosity leading her every single step. And not long after, she found herself completely lost. And as darkness settled in, she could not find her way back. And day after day, people were searching for her. They couldn't find her anywhere. She was barely subsisting on the little bit of food she could find. Her royal clothes gone and tattered, just not making it. She stumbles outside the other side of the forest eventually and finds herself at a potato farmer and his wife's land. They don't recognize her. They don't know about this kingdom. They don't know that the princess has been lost. They just see this little girl in need, and so they bring her into their home, and they raise her as their own. Years and years and years go by, and somebody from the, from the royal palace, from the kingdom, is walking by on the road, and they see her out digging potatoes. And they're looking, and they look, and they think, she looks awfully familiar. I think she might be. Watches a little bit longer. For sure it is. He recognizes her. And he goes to her and he says, hey, do you know who you are? I'm the potato farmer's daughter. I dig potatoes. That's my dad and that's my mom. No, no, no. You were a little girl in our kingdom and you were the, the princess and you wandered away and we searched and searched for you. We, we, thought, we thought you were dead. Nobody's going to believe us. You have to come back with me. I have to, we have to tell everybody that we found you. We have found the princess. You are the long lost daughter of the king. She says, no, I'm a potato farmer's daughter. This is my mom and this is my dad and this is my home. This is where I want to stay. This is where I belong. And so he walked back, not going, not, she didn't join him. But from that day on, she dug potatoes differently because she knew she was a daughter of the king. I think part of what God is trying to constantly tell us through our text is that we are chosen. We are God's family. We are children of the king, sons and daughters of the king. We are royalty. We're a holy priesthood, a royal nation. And our circumstances may not change. We're still going to have to go home to the same house today and be part of those same difficult conversations and the same sleepless nights with young ones or the same difficult loneliness or challenges or the work situation or whatever it might be. But my prayer is that when we go back, we go back different because we know that we are sons and daughters of the king. We are sons and daughters of the king. We pray this every week. Every week when we pray the Lord's Prayer, our Father in heaven, blessed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We can say that because we are part of that kingdom. And we are part of the way in which the will of the Father gets done here on earth. We are sons and daughters of the King. And as a result of that, we are to live differently.
We're to look different. We're to live different. The Bible will pull this thread throughout. Malachi talks it at the very beginning. Malachi chapter 1 verse 6. A son honors his father and servants their master. If then I am a father, where is the honor due me, God asks. If I'm a master, where's the respect due me, says the Lord of hosts to you, O priests who despise my name. Right? God is immediately calling up. Like, if I'm your father, then why don't you act like it? If I am your father and if you are my child, then why aren't you living differently? Why aren't you living as though I am the one that you will respect? As though, like, whose daughter are you? Whose son are you? Jesus talks this way too, doesn't he? In John 13, little children, he says. Is that something you expect? Like, if I, on a Sunday, stepped up here and was like, little children. She's like, she's lost her mind. That with the children, were just dismissed, right? Jesus says, little children, I am with you only a little longer. You will look for me. And as I said to the Judeans, so now I say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. I give you a new commandment that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also should love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples, my students, if you have love for one another, right? Like, I know who you are. I've chosen you. You didn't choose me. I chose you. And now that you are with me, little children, you'll behave this way. There's an expected set of family values and rules for people who are followers of God, for, he, for people who are part of this story. We have an expected set of, of rules, don't we? And as, just as we mentioned before, we might in different families have different ways of talking about it, right? We'll talk about those different family crests. What is your family about? What is it that you are focused on? And the Bible is doing the very same thing. Did you ever have to do that exercise in school where you had to make your own family crest? Anybody? Great. I had to do I was like, what is, I don't know what my family is about. Like, we read books and <laughs> that's about it. So uh, we, we didn't have like one of those families like we surf. Everybody surfs. We all surf. Surfboard goes right on the crest, right? We didn't. I, I think I'm pretty sure I put a book. That was it, right? Maybe a dog. We've always had dogs. Um, we didn't have unicorns. So just in case you're wondering, that's not my family crest. Um, I think Spark has a family crest. I think we together as a community for these last seven years We've decided that these seven values, love, reputation, reconciliation, rescue, and resurrection, these are the things that we feel identify us as followers of Jesus and make us part of this large Jesus movement that we're part of, as well as what it means to be spark. Like when we come here, we're going to try to live these out and experience Christ through these values, these values we see on display in the life of Jesus and in the life of the church. You see, the things that God commands us to do, they're not just commands about how we're supposed to live in a new land. They are how we're to live when we realize that we are in God's family and that we are dwelling with God. When Israel goes into the new land, God goes with them. God doesn't stay only in the desert in that tabernacle, that nice fancy tent. God goes with them into the land. God stays with them in the land. God dwells with them. And if the Holy One, blessed be he, is dwelling with us, then we might need to live differently. We need to live differently. 
I think in my life and in Silicon Valley and as we continue to talk about how we do this thing and how do we live in this way and, and how do we handle the fact that we often see a Christianity on display that we don't recognize, a Jesus being preached that does not sound familiar to us, how do we manage and deal with all of that? And it ends up asking the question, who am I? Am I a Christian? How does, what does that mean to be a Christian? Do I still want to be a Christian in this world? What does it look like? Who am I? I think in this world of massive globalization and all of the beauty that that brings us, it also brings us a lot of disorientation. We're not living in familial homes anymore, are we? There's very few of us here in the Bay Area that can even say that we're one generation in the Bay Area, let alone more than one. Most of our community here, 30 to 40 percent, was born in a country other than the U.S. And that's fantastic. That brings a richness with us. You know what it also brings? Some disorientation, doesn't it? We're not quite living in that same sort of anchored groundedness, at least of place. So who are we? Are we Californians? Do we hold on to our citizenship? Who are we? What are we doing here? This has become so prevalent that now with DNA tests, there are heritage tours. Because so many of us have been displaced. Some without their permission, right? Stolen from lands and brought here, not knowing where we belong, not knowing where anyone is connected. Others of us have been here for generations, but we're so far removed from any connection that, you know, if you're Irish, it just means you might have relatives that drink, right? There's not even any connection to that. Or if you're German, you like sausage. I don't know, right? Like we're so far removed from some of these connections that we've started to search, right? I will pay lots of money for that DNA test so I can figure out that now because of a report that comes back, I'm 39% this and, you know, 40% that. And so I'm going to claim the 40% more than the 39. And, and I've heard so many people wrestling and talking about it. And I understand it. It's disorienting and difficult. I think it particularly is in Silicon Valley. Just this week, New York Times, right on the front cover, Silicon Valley has to go to therapy. Because we don't know who we are. And you know what has not filled that void? Technology, fame, wealth. None of that has worked. So Silicon Valley companies are starting to have to create new apps for therapists, of course, like this. We're going to have to make an app for that. Um, they're trying to create an app so that you don't have to go to the bad therapist. You can just get the five-star therapist at the top. And I'm sure that'll all work really well. Um, Bummed out by the world and their role in it, tech workers are seeking help and founding some startups along the way. I don't know if that's going to work, y'all. A year ago, Wired Magazine asking the question, has Silicon Valley lost its soul? And then has a debate about it, the case for and against. Who are we? What are we doing? Who do we belong to? Our friend groups change when we move jobs. Our friend group change when we move churches. Our friend groups change again when we have to relocate. These are challenging places to continue to ask that question. Who am I? Where do I belong? Where's my identity? And does it even matter? Interestingly enough, today is World Migrant and Refugee Day. 
And so today at the Vatican, they unveiled this incredible new sculpture um, entitled Angels Unawares by a Canadian artist named Timothy Schmaltz. And it's in St. Peter's Square. This is from today. And it's a variety of different refugees and immigrants from all over the different periods of history from all over the globe. Um, Different religious beliefs, backgrounds, genders, everything huddled together on a raft. And this Pope's amazing, isn't he? Like, and he's just trying to make sure that right in the middle of St. Peter's Square, we're going to remember that the migrant and the refugee need to be part of our story, that they're actually the center part of our story. And yet, in the middle of this, just this week, just a couple days ago, Silicon Valley goes to the Vatican to talk tech ethics. Because they're going to go and talk with the Pope and the Vatican about what it means to have an ethic in Silicon Valley as more artificial intelligence is developed, as more technology comes into our world. What does it mean to have an ethic? I can't believe that Silicon Valley is going to the Vatican to ask those questions. All of us, a little bit, are living in exile. The Israelites had been in exile for 400 years in Egypt, enslaved. And then as they move, they've lost the only place they've known, even though it was a place of hardship and slavery, that iron-smelting furnace the Bible calls Egypt, this prison that they were in. It still was a home, a home for 400 years. And they're leaving that place And they're going into this desert and they'll wander now for 40 years and then they'll finally be able to go into the land. And they're living and moving into that land as exiles without a place to call home. Still intense, still moving. And that exile part of our identity is still part of our biblical story and it pushes all the way through as well. Right? The exile and what is the way home then? So as they enter into this new land, this land of Canaan, they're still asking those questions. Who am I? What am I to do with this place? How do I live in this place? Where's the water going to come from? What kind of food are we allowed to eat here? Can we do this type of worship with the, the gods or no, or we can't? Or how are we going to do it? What? Who are we? And in the middle of that, God says, you are the children of the Lord. You are the children of the Lord. That's who you are. You belong. You have a family. You have a father. That is not changing. No matter where you go, no matter where you find yourself, you are still sons and daughters of the king, a royal priesthood, a holy nation set apart. And the moment God will continue to push in and say, remember, I carried you like a father carries a child. Remember, I chose you. I've given you a full inheritance. Remember, you are my children. When God does that, he creates a world. Those words create a world for Israel to live in. A world where they can get settled into their identity. We will not do that because we are children of the Lord. We will not do that because we are children of the Lord. We will not do that because I know who I am. I know who my father is. I know where I come from. I know how I'm to live. Those words that God gives Israel create a world, a place for them to be even when they're displaced. A home for them to belong to even when they have no home. Those words create that world for them to live into.
First Peter picks up on this as well. You are chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's own people, in order that you might proclaim the mighty acts of him who's called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. We get to live differently. Peter grabs all of these Exodus, exile conversations and Deuteronomistic words as he comes on into the new land and gives us that identity again, even as the first followers of Jesus are being scattered and displaced around the Greco-Roman world and persecuted as well. And as this initially first Jewish movement of followers of Jesus starts to add in Gentiles, much to the surprise of Peter and everyone else, Paul will use these words in Galatians 3. For in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. Not only Israel, all. As many of you were baptized into Christ, have clothed yourself with Christ, there's no longer Jew or Greek. There's no longer slave or free. There's no longer male or female and female. For all of you are one in Christ Jesus. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. That large tent, by the way, that's been expanded since the beginning. There were a whole bunch of Egyptians that went with Israel when the exile happened. And they were brought into that big family of God. Ruth, a Moabitess, is brought into the family of God. And from her comes David and ultimately Jesus. God's always been inviting the rest of us in to God's family. Jesus says this in John 15. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. This is where we find our home. Live here. Live in the love that God God has for us. Live in the love of Christ. And if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love just as I've kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. Here is where we find our home. Here is where we find our family. We are called children of the Lord our God. We are a people holy to the Lord our God. The Lord has chosen us. Out of all the peoples on the earth, he chooses everybody. Remember that t-shirt, Jesus loves you, but then again, he loves everybody. (laughs) He chooses all of us, all of us to be his people, his treasured possessions. We are all sons and daughters of the king. And in a world that feels crazy sometimes. And for those that we look at in our community with like the highest population of unhoused amongst the U.S. here in the Bay Area, where people are without physical home, where so many of us have been moved about or displaced, where our families live far away, we don't know where we're supposed to go, things are topsy-turvy, guess what? You are a son of the king. You are a daughter of the king. And God has chosen us. And we belong here. And as followers of Jesus, when we want to ask that question, who am I? We're his disciples. We have a family crest. And we belong.